you pray with me? Father, as we transition now from singing praise to hearing from your word, Lord, we just ask that you would quiet our hearts and draw us close to you. Lord, we ask that we could feel your presence here with us. God, don't let us miss anything that your scriptures have for us today. Speak loudly into our lives, God, as we look at a familiar Christmas passage. God, don't let us miss the truth, the powerful gospel truth that is in here for us in our lives right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. So Christmas is a great time for feeling nostalgic, amen, right? It's a great time. I was feeling pretty nostalgic on Friday, and so I uh, got out at my computer, and I looked up the, uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? <laughs> Which is just pure nostalgia, right? You're just watching that, and you just know everything that's going to happen, and it's about 20 minutes long which is just hard to believe that they make anything 20 minutes long anymore, but you're just watching that, and it's just a beautiful thing. And I realized something as I was watching it, though, is that I had Charlie Brown all wrong, right? I always thought Charlie Brown, I always felt for him, right? He's just looking around trying to find the true meaning of Christmas. Poor guy, he feels lonely, he feels depressed, and he's looking and he's going around. But I realized watching this that that's not the whole story, that Charlie Brown is not the nicest guy, if you really watch that thing. There's a whole scene where Charlie Brown, this sad sack Charlie Brown, is walking around to all his friends and criticizing them, right? He comes up to this girl who he knows didn't send him a Christmas card, and he's like, thanks for the Christmas card, and it just all backfires on him. And then he goes, and he's like picking on his dog. I mean, this, this guy is so just focused on himself that he's even criticizing his dog. He's bullying this animal uh, because he doesn't live in, a, in a, you know, the right kind of dog house. I mean, it is just really sad. It really kind of ruined the whole thing for me. And I realized that, you know, we may, you may relate to Charlie Brown. You may feel like, you know, everybody's forgotten the true meaning of Christmas and, and we need to get it back and everybody is just all about commercialism, right? That's the whole message. But I think that we might actually relate more to everybody else in the Charlie Brown special, right? Because everybody else is just kind of going through the motions, right? It's not that they don't know the true meaning of Christmas. They're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other. They're putting up the lights. They're decorating the tree. They're doing the Christmas play. And they they just don't stop to think about it. And so if I may, I want to be Charlie Brown for you today. And I want to talk about the true meaning of Christmas. Because I think that this time of year, we can get so caught up. Even though we all love Christmas, we can get so caught up in the Christmas haze, right? We're so excited for it. Maybe in the beginning of December, you're pumped for it. You've got all these plans and these different things you're going to do with your family. Um, and then as we get and we inch closer and closer to the actual holiday, things get busy. And you've got to go shopping. And you've got to go here and there. And you've got to go to this Christmas party and that Christmas party. And all of a sudden, the day is here and you've missed the whole thing. And so... I want to try to combat that Christmas haze today, and I want to give you something that is true, something that is powerful, and it's something that's all about Christmas for you to meditate on and reflect on as an act of worship as we come into this day that means so much for our faith. Here's my big idea for today. Christmas makes new life possible. Christmas, what we celebrate on Christmas, the thing that happened on Christmas Day, makes new life for us human beings possible. Let's go to the passage for today and we'll see how this is true. And today we're looking at a very familiar Christmas passage. And because it's a familiar Christmas passage, it's probably one of the most familiar passages in the Bible in Luke chapter 2. It says, In the same region 
There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want to stop and ask a few questions of this very familiar story so that we can get deeper into the deeper meaning behind what the angels are doing, who the shepherds are, so we can draw this together and really understand a significant truth about what we celebrate on Christmas. First question I want to ask is, why were the shepherds terrified? And to a certain degree, I think we probably understand why they were terrified, right? I mean, just look at verses 8 to 9. It says, in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. In other words, minding their own business, doing what shepherds do. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So first of all, we have this kind of tendency, and I've heard a lot of Christmas things and a lot of people, and you know, I uh, make a, a, a practice of listening to different preachers talk about Christmas and stuff, and there's this kind of idea out there that the shepherds are like social outcasts, right? That nobody wants anything to do with the shepherds. They are the bottom of the totem pole. They are disgusting, and they are outcasts and pariahs in society, and I got to tell you, I cannot find that that is true <laughs> because you look at all the evidence out there and the truth of the matter is that this idea comes from the fact that shepherds because of their job because they worked with animals they were made ceremonially unclean is what it means and that basically means that when they went to the temple to worship God which is where all the Jewish people would go to worship God they had to go through this ritual cleansing. So they would go and they would go through this ritual cleansing that involved prayer, it involved actually physically washing yourself before you could go into the temple to worship. And so we take that and we think, well, they're ceremonially unclean, so they must be outcasts. They must be cast out of society. But everybody was ceremonially unclean. Everybody who came to the temple had to go through those same processes of cleansing themselves before they could come into the temple to worship. And so shepherds weren't different in that respect. And then also, you realize that King David, who was like the Jew of all the Jews, was a shepherd, right, before he became king. And then also, think about in the Psalms, God is compared to a shepherd. And so this business about shepherds being outcasts and being untouchables is just really not true. Actually, what's true about shepherds is that they're just normal people. They're just average Joes. There's nothing special about them, but there's also nothing especially terrible about them. They are blue-collar workers. They are average Joes. They're out in the field doing their job, and it's why it's so surprising that God comes to just nobodies, just anybody out there in the field that night. And when it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, whatever image you have in your head, hopefully you're not picturing, you know, a cute little cherub baby angel, you know, floating around and saying, oh, glory to God. But actually, <laughs> you might be picturing something that's kind of scary because in the Old Testament, if you know anything about this, sometimes angels are depicted as these weird, like creepy kind of creatures, right? They have multiple faces of different animals. And every time somebody appears or an angel appears to somebody in the Old or New Testament, they always have to say, don't be afraid. 
And the implication there is that there's something scary about that, right? And so whatever you're picturing with the angel, just kind of make it scarier in your mind <laughs> because it was scary. These guys weren't expecting anything, and then suddenly this spiritual being is standing in front of them. But even that is not the terrifying thing for the shepherds. Do you notice in the passage it not only says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, but that the glory of the Lord shone around them? The glory of the Lord. It wasn't just that there was this angel, but actually that they were surrounded by something shining that they knew was God's presence, God's glory. And the reason that they were terrified has a lot to do with that statement. In the Old Testament, God's presence in the Bible was always cause for terror. It was always terrifying to be in the presence of God. You can go all the way back to the beginning of, um, of our Bibles in the book of Exodus where Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, brings them out into the desert all the way to Mount Sinai. And then you have this really interesting episode in Exodus chapter 19. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so here we have a depiction as God's people come to Mount Sinai, the presence of God moving around this mountain. And it manifests itself in what? In smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts. And so God's people are brought close, and it says they trembled. In the next chapter, it says this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so standing in the presence of God, God's people who have just been brought out of Egypt by God himself are brought into his presence and they're too afraid to approach him. They send someone else to speak to God on their behalf because they believe seeing this glory of God manifested on the mountain that if they step into that, then they're definitely going to die. And so they send Moses up the mountain. And this is what it says happens when Moses goes up in chapter 33. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, in a notch in the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so even here, Moses desires to see God. He's not afraid to step into God's presence, but God tells him himself, to see me, you'll die. That sinful human beings, when they come into the presence of a holy God, it has the effect on us that we're vaporized. We can't stand before him. In our sinfulness, compared to his glory, his glory is always going to win. And so you go on in the Old Testament, and in case there's any confusion about this, you go on in the law, in the Torah that God reveals to Moses, and 
there's this really interesting thing that happens. There's, there's, God sets up this temple where his presence will live, and people go into the temple to worship like we just talked about with the shepherds. And as, as God makes his presence live in this temple, and he has these priests and these Levites, these people who work in the temple to help people come and worship God, he gives all these rules about how they are supposed to live and operate in the temple. And in fact, you could even say it as God gives a list of things that if you do these things in God's presence, you will die. It says, if you wear the wrong clothing in God's presence, you will die. Forget to wash up before you come into God's presence, and you'll die. Uncover your head. Neglect to comb your hair. Use too much anointing oil. Get tipsy, and you'll die. Look at the ark, which is the place in the innermost part of the temple where God's presence abided in the most consolidated, most powerful and holy place. It says, look at the ark. Get too close to the ark. Touch the ark, and you'll die. And then even this, if you eat in there, you'll die. And so all of these things, these warnings that if you don't approach God in the right way, in exactly the way that he's told you, then the consequence could be catastrophic, could be fatal. And God in his mercy didn't always follow through on this threat, but it, it shows us a truth about God, that as we are sinful people and we try to come into his presence, it's not always going to go well for us. And so why were the shepherds terrified by what happened? Well, because an encounter with God usually meant death, and they would have known that. And so they see God's glory shining around them. They see God's presence coming to them and an angel standing before them, and they probably thought this is the end of the line for us. God's come to bring judgment and condemnation upon us sinful people here tonight. Have you ever um, been caught red-handed? <laughs> Maybe you remember back as a child and had, a, you know, an authority figure, a parent or a teacher or someone catch you doing something wrong. This happened to me actually in my freshman year of high school. It was one of the scariest moments of my life because, um, you know, I was sitting in a history class and I remember I had my homework and my friend was sitting in the row next to me and he's kind of like, hey, Colin, let me see your homework. And so I kind of handed it to him. You know, he's my friend and I didn't want him to think I was lame. So I give him my homework and he's furiously copying my homework down. And I notice in this moment, where's the teacher? Where is she? And then suddenly, you know, this shadow is cast over us, and the hand of God comes down and takes the, the, the homework away, and it's just this feeling, this pit in your stomach. Have you ever had that before? You get caught doing something you weren't supposed to do in a moment, and all of a sudden, you feel like you're going to die. <laughs> well, take that feeling and multiply it by a trillion and you might have a sense of how the shepherds felt. They knew they were sinners. They knew that they existed in this state of rebellion against God because everyone does. And so when God shows up, when they have an encounter with God, they probably think that it's the end of the line for them. Second question I want to ask, which will also cast light on this, is what did the angels announce to the shepherds? So we have these shepherds, the angel appears, the glory of the Lord shines around them. They are terrified or they are, they are sore afraid is the translation you may know from the, from the King James Version. They are terrified and then the angel speaks. Look at verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
And so right off the bat, we have this message from the, the angels that contradicts the expectations of the shepherds. First of all, they're told, don't be afraid. I know you're afraid because I know you think that you know what's going to happen, but don't be afraid. And then they say, I give you good news. And the Greek word for good news here is the same as the word for the gospel. Because the angels here are the first evangelists. They're giving the very first, for the very first time, the message of Jesus Christ to people who are going to see him momentarily. And then finally, it's not news that brings terror like they expected, but it brings great joy. The angels then reveal what that good and joyous news is in verse 11. They say, for unto you, shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And those three words, Savior, Christ, and Lord, are actually three titles for Jesus. And also they're a three-word summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they tell us who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's a Savior meaning he's a rescuer. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to punish, but he came to save, to rescue, to give new life to these people, to save them from their sins and not to condemn them for their sins. Also, he's a Christ, which means he's the promised one. He's the Messiah that had been prophesied about. And we looked at some of those prophecies last week, but the whole Old Testament is pointing toward this one who is coming, and the angels tell the shepherds that this is the one, that he is a savior, and he's the one you've been expecting. And then finally, that he's the Lord. He's a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this last one is very interesting, and it might take a little more unpacking. You see, in the Old Testament, God's name was Yahweh. That was the name that God uh, revealed to Moses that was his name, his covenant name, that everybody called him Yahweh. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see in all caps the word Lord. And the word behind that is Yahweh in the Hebrew language. And the, the Jewish people thought that name was so holy and so special and so different that they wouldn't even speak it out loud. And it's still a practice today that the Jewish people don't speak the name Yahweh out loud. Instead, they say the term of respect Adonai. And so as they're reading it, they see Yahweh, but they say Adonai instead. And then m many, many years later, after the Bible's written and it comes into the, the, into the hands of the Greeks, they translate this Old Testament into their own language, into Greek. And when they do that, they change Yahweh or Adonai into kurios, which is the word that means Lord. And so all of this draws together to say that when the angels announce to the shepherds that a savior, a rescuer who has been born, and he is the promised one of old, and that he is the Lord, they mean precisely that he is Yahweh himself, that he is God come to earth. And if you need any more proof, look back at verse 9, where it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And that Lord there is clearly Yahweh. It's clearly God Almighty, because the angel's not coming from the baby, the glory is not the glory shining around the baby, but it's the glory of the Lord. And so the angels here are very clear that this one who you've been expecting will be a savior, and there's something unexpected about him that actually he is Yahweh himself. He is the eternal, almighty God that you have been worshiping all this time. As amazing as that is, there's still more in verse 12. The angels then say, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so the angels give the shepherds a sign, and a sign so that they can know to show them that God has come in peace 
that his arrival is good news, that they're not going to be vaporized, that they're not going to die when they come into his presence. But actually, the sign here is that Yahweh, God Almighty, creator of the universe, has come into the world, and not just come into the world, but come into the world as a tiny, helpless baby, laying in a manger, an animal's feeding trough. And in case there's any confusion here, that was not normal. (laughs) To take a baby and put it in an animal's feed box is about as different to them back then as it would be to us today. To give birth in a hospital and then walk out the door and go find a dirty barn with a cow in it and go and lay it in the feeding trough. It's not something that you did. It's totally different. And this was an act, as you know, if you've you've read the passage up to this point, this was an act of desperation by Jesus' parents. They had nowhere to go. They were so poor, and they knew nobody, and all the inns were full. And so they go to this stable, to this barn, and they find a place where they can lay the baby down, and that's where they lay it down, in a stinking, disgusting animal's feeding trough. And so the message here is that God has humbled himself so much that the almighty, eternal Yahweh God has come to earth in the most unexpected way as a baby in a feed box. And so pulling all this together, we can see the message of the angels is that while an encounter with God has historically in the Old Testament meant death, through Jesus, an encounter with God means new life. This is the unexpected thing about Christmas. This is something that nobody would have seen coming, that they expected this conqueror and this deliverer, but they expected him to come in judgment and in condemnation, and instead he comes in humility, and he comes in weakness as a baby in a feed box. You know, when uh, Rachel and I were first dating ages ago, um, <laughs> she took a, we, we went to uh, Twigs, this restaurant up here, and we were just dating, and so I really wanted to try to impress her, and so I thought Twigs is kind of a little bit more expensive, and so we went there. I mean, it's not Burger King, you know, so we went, <laughs> we went to Twigs, and I was thinking, you know, if you really want to impress somebody, if you really want to show, like, I'm in, and I, and I am, you know, giving this a lot of value, then you buy the appetizer, right? You really spring for the appetizer. You don't just get the meal, okay? You don't just get the drinks. You get the appetizer, too. And so I said to the waiter, and I'm feeling like a big spender, I'm like, we'll take the, uh, the fries and the, with the gorgonzola dip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I'm talking about. That stuff is amazing. They got these fries with the, the seasoning and then this little dip. And anyway, I'm getting, a, I'm getting away from the story. I'll get it back. I'll get it back. Um, <laughs> So we're sitting there, and we're talking, and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, impress her and all that. And then they bring the, the fries over and the gorgonzola dip, right? And she must have not heard me order it because she sees it come, and she goes, oh, that looks really good. And she takes a spoon, and she grabs the dip, which is in this little cup, and she takes a spoonful. And before I can say, no, don't, or, you know, even if I would have, maybe I just would have thought, oh, that's weird. But she takes the spoon, she pops it in her mouth, and I'm telling you, the look on her face goes from, like, you know, like, happy, having a good time to, like, oh, dear God, what is that, (laughs) you know? Because she thought that it was soup. (laughs) She thought it was, like, a cream of mushroom soup, and instead she's tasting, like like, a cheese fondue gorgonzola dip. And so, totally different from what she expected. That's kind of the feeling we're supposed to get as we read this passage, (laughs) but in the opposite way, right? (laughs) That everything in the Bible would lead you to believe that when God comes into the presence of human beings or when human beings go into the presence of God, it means death. It means that their sinfulness cannot coexist with this holiness of God, and so they cease to exist. 
But instead, the message is that God is coming to earth. And when he does, he's not going to bring death and condemnation and judgment. He's going to bring forgiveness and life and joy. Christmas means that the unapproachably holy God of the Old Testament has made himself ultimately approachable as a baby in a manger. Christmas means that the God whose presence meant certain death in the Old Testament now is coming into our presence as one of us in order to bring us new and eternal life. One more question. Why do the angels praise God? Look at verse, uh, verses 13 to 14. It says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, and that phrase there, the, the heavenly host, means the armies of heaven, the armies of angels. They were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice here that it's the announcement that Yahweh himself has been born as a tiny helpless baby in the manger. It's that message, it's that statement that makes the armies of heaven erupt into glorious praise of God Almighty. So why do the angels praise God? Because God is glorified in humility. God is more glorified by making himself small, by humbling himself, by emptying himself, by becoming a part of his creation. This humility glorifies God because it sets him apart from every other God that you've ever heard of. I mean, think about it. What other God is there who is not only vast and transcendent and powerful and omnipotent, but also small and weak and suffering and human? Jesus is different. And it's that difference that makes him all the more glorious to us. Because his humanity means that he knows us. He knows what we go through. He's experienced that. And we can come into his presence. The overarching message of this passage is very simple. And it's that Christmas makes new life possible. This is actually really well explained by a doctrine called the incarnation of God. The incarnation of God. And that means, incarnation means to take on human flesh. And so we believe in the incarnation that God himself, who has existed throughout all eternity past as spirit, in a moment in time that we call Christmas, brought into his very nature our humanity. That's the message of Christmas. Everything that Jesus did, everything that you read in the Gospels, makes sense because he is the incarnate God. Because the incarnate God was perfectly obedient in his life, we are able to obey God in our human lives. Because the incarnate God, who is God and man, died on the cross, our sinful flesh has been put to death as well. Because the incarnate God rose from the grave, our human nature has been renewed and brought to life. So I want to ask you a question. Do you need new life? Do you need new life? And where do you need new life? Do you need it in a struggling marriage or some other broken relationship with a parent or with a child or with a loved one or a friend? Do you need new life in your mental health? Are you fighting depression, anxiety, loneliness? Do you need new life in your fight against temptation and addiction and those same things that seem ready at the door when you're looking for an escape? Jesus has taken your weakness and he's taken your brokenness and he offers you a new life in him. But here's the thing. This new life is not our response to what God has done for us. 
Sometimes we think about it along those lines. We think God has given us salvation. God has saved us from sin and death and hell. He's brought us into his presence. He offers us an eternity with him. And so now I need to have new life. Now I need to change. Now I need to act in accordance with that thing. I owe God something. I need to give something back to him. And all of those things, though, take away the true scandalous message of Christmas which is that new life is actually a gift from God. It's a gift that God offers to us. It's not something you have to work for. It's not something you have to do in response to what God has done for you. It's something that God is offering you simply as a gift. I want you to think about it this way. In, in about 10 days, actually in exactly 10 days, we're going to have Christmas. And some of you are going to have Christmas with your families, and you're going to come down the stairs, and you know, you're going to have this moment where everybody's opening gifts. And I want you just to visualize this for a second, that somebody offers you a present. You say, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. You didn't have to do that, even though you both know they kind of did because, you know, it's <laughs> Christmas. So they hand you the present, and you're so excited, and so you just, you're tearing off the wrapping paper with your teeth. You know, you're just so thrilled to get in there. You see what it is, and you're just thrilled. And you think, this is the most thoughtful, this is the most meaningful gift someone has ever given to me. This is beautiful. This, I can't believe you knew that I wanted this. I don't know how you mastered all of these different things to get into my head to understand that one thing that I wanted that I didn't even know that I wanted. And you're just so thrilled. You feel so loved. You feel just absolutely on top of the world because someone loves you enough to give you the exact gift that you wanted and that you needed. And then the next day, Boxing Day, you're just at home. You know, you're trying to recover from all that turkey and you're, you know, you're just uh, lounging around in your pajamas, and, and suddenly something slides under the door. So you run up, and you pick up this piece of paper that came under the door, and it's an invoice. It says, one gift, and it has the amount that you owe to the person who gave you that <laughs> gift. New life is a gift from God. He doesn't expect you to pay him back for salvation. This new life that you get to live is not what you now have to do because God has done something for you. It's all what God is doing for you. It's all a gift. And the moment that you try to pay it back, it's no longer a gift. Then it's a trade. Then it's something that you worked for. It's something that you earned. God wants to give you this gift of new life at Christmas. Will you accept it? In faith, will you say, thank you, Jesus. I accept that gift. I believe that you can give it to me, and I accept it and take it as my own. Will you do that this Christmas, or will you reject it by expecting that you could somehow pay him back for this gracious gift that he's given you? Let's pray. I just want to invite you in an attitude of prayer as we go to worship now to really reflect on where you stand in your relationship with God. I want you to think about how you think about that gift of salvation. Do you think of it as a gift? Or are you trying to pay God back for that gift? And some of you may not have ever made that decision to accept that gift from Jesus Christ. Some of you may have never known that that was even possible to receive that from him. And so if that's you today, I want to invite you as we worship to just be thinking about that offer of salvation and of new life and of new power and of new meaning that God wants to give you today and at Christmas. Father God, as we go to worship now, we just ask that you would apply these words to our lives. 
God, don't let us let ourselves off the hook here today. God, as we worship you, we want to feel you here with us. And we ask you to speak into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name.